Welcome to Iodine Intelligence, empowering intelligent care. Hey there, welcome to the Iodine Intelligence Podcast brought to you by the experts at Iodine Software. I am your host, Hillary Kennedy, and today we're going to be focusing on how Iodine Software has positioned their company as uncatchable in the AI ML technology space. You know, over time, iodine software models have become progressively more accurate due to both increases in the amount of data available and improvements and iterations to the model. And joining me to discuss how they have changed the game regarding accuracy is Lance Eason, the chief data scientist of iodine software. And Lance has been with iodine for 10 years and is focused on using software to solve the hard problems that deliver demonstrable business value. So I'm excited to welcome you to the show, Lance. Thank you, Hillary. All right, so I just want to dive right in. You know, Iodine has been iterating on models for seven years, which means even if your competitors drastically change their models or methodologies to match what you are doing today, they would be starting behind. Why has this been key to Iodine's success? So the whole effort of building these models, it's not an accident that when we talk about data science that the word science is right there in the title. It's a process of discovery. On the one hand, you've got this incredible range of different tools that have been developed in terms of different types of models. You've got deep learning models and random forest models and regression and Bayes. And there, there are literally dozens of different types of models that you can apply to these problems. On the other hand, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make very specific types of predictions. And in our case, a lot of the predictions that we're making are about specific disease conditions that can affect the patient. So does the patient have heart failure? Do they have pneumonia? Do they have sepsis? Each of these conditions has its own idiosyncrasies. The same type of model doesn't work equally well for every type of condition that you're trying to predict. Something like an electrolyte imbalance, such as a hyponatremia or a hypernatremia, those are relatively straightforward. There's going to be a couple of different markers that you're going to hone in on that are going to drive most of the prediction for the model. Something like sepsis, on the other hand, is very complex because sepsis is a bloodstream infection. And that bloodstream infection it goes throughout the entire body and it leads to systemic organ failure of different organ systems. And depending upon what organ systems are failing, it can present in all sorts of different ways. And it's, it's a much more complex problem. So one type of model, one set of techniques is not going to work equally well for both of those. So it, it's, it's both a combination of figuring out what your tool set is, what types of problems these different tools are applicable for, and then figuring out the nature of the diseases you're actually trying to predict, what tools are necessary for those specific problems. Well, and I love that you know, you, you've come such a long way in the past seven years. So I would like to just chat a little bit about how did your, your first generation model perform seven years ago compared to how it's performing today? It really varies a lot depending on the condition. There are certain conditions that are very common and, again, are fairly straightforward. So an example that I would give there is, is acute renal failure. Acute renal failure, first of all, it happens a lot. So you have lots and lots of different patients, lots of examples to learn from. Second, there are a fairly limited number of factors that markers that get you fairly far in predicting acute renal failure. So you can get pretty far just by looking at things like creatinine and bun levels. So out of the box, 
the very first generation models that we built on acute renal failure, we got spectacular results. So one of the common measures that we use is F1, which tries to look at how well the model is doing both in finding all the cases and being right when it actually predicts, makes predictions. So it's a combined metric that combines those two. And on a scale of zero to one, uh, the acute renal failure model, our early ones were above 0.9. So it may be even up to 0.95. So we've had to do very little iteration on that model. That one, just out of the box. There's other models such as sepsis, such as malnutrition, such as encephalopathy, that are a lot more complex to actually predict. They present a lot of different ways and they're a lot more complicated. And for those models, our first malnutrition model, I want to say was probably down around 0.3, which is not, not a terribly good model. We have iterated over time and we've improved that. So one I know the numbers right off the top of my head for is one we're going to talk about some more is sepsis. Our very first sepsis model 0.52. So about halfway as good. Perfect would be one. 0.52, you're halfway there. That was already a lot better than the rules-based approach that we were using initially, but it's still a long way to progress. Over the past seven years, we've probably gone through about seven or eight different generations of that sepsis model. And we're not going through those generations just idly because we want to put a new version out. We're putting out new versions when we can increase the performance. And we've increased the performance over those seven years from about 0.52 to now we're in the low 0.8 range. So we're getting to a very accurate model now. And there's still things, further things that we can do to improve that. We're continuing to work on that model. So it's kind of a practice makes perfect. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it very much is. It, it, it is an experimental effort. It's an iterative effort. So it's, it's a lot of brainstorming about what do we think is going wrong with the models currently, looking for patterns where they're m- making mistakes, looking at places where we would expect the model to use information that's not using information and trying to figure out why it's not pulling in that information. And then running an experiment, seeing what happens, does it improve? And over time, and with a lot of work and a lot of iteration, the numbers have steadily increased. And I would say our average model is above 0.8 on a scale of zero to one now, F1. That's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's it's great to see that that all that hard work is paying off. And you know, most of your competitors, they use AI in, in some form or another, so there are some questions of, well, isn't 3M doing the same sure. thing as you are? Or, well, can't Optum just start doing what you're doing? What are your thoughts on that? So there's two things that strike me when we talk about just saying a competitor is using AI. The first we've already talked about, which is what is the quality of the predictions that are actually being made? If we had gone and said we are using AI to predict sepsis seven years ago, which we did, and we say it today, we're saying two different things because our predictions at that point were 0.5 versus 0.8 nowadays. So there's been a significant increase in the actual quality of the predictions that we're making over time. The second is, what problem are you actually trying to solve? What type of predictions are you actually making? And this is where I think 
iodine has primarily differentiated itself from a lot of our competitors. If you look at, for instance, what 3M has done historically, the problem that they focused on, 3M, comes from a coding background. They're very comfortable with this notion of interpreting the patient documentation, reading through that documentation, and trying to pull out diagnosis codes from that documentation. When they came into the CDI space, that's the lens that they viewed the problem through is how do we look at the documentation and identify what's wrong with that documentation. The problem with that approach is the documentation itself is not where most of the CDI opportunity is. What CDI is about is making sure what is documented for the patient matches what's actually going on clinically with the patient. And if you're not looking at that other side of the equation of what's clinically going on with the patient, what diseases do they actually have, then just reading the documentation is not going to tell you all the things that aren't documented or aren't accurately documented. You need both sides of that picture and you need to compare those sides of the picture to figure out where the gaps are. So yes, 3M uses AI. And the the other aspect I, I think I would throw in there as well is AI is a broad umbrella. I, I was already talking about there's lots of different model techniques that you can apply to these problems. But it's beyond that. AI includes NLP. It includes image recognition. It includes optical character recognition. There's a wide range of things that are considered AI technologies. That's not the same thing as saying you're actually making predictions about specific diseases. And I think a lot of our competitors lean on this notion that they're using NLP, and NLP is a form of AI technology, therefore we can say we use AI. And what they're not doing is bringing a lot of these other types of AI into the mix, essentially the machine learning sides of things to actually make predictions. They have historically focused more on interpreting that documentation. Right. It is such a blanket statement when people say, oh, well, we work with AI. Yep. But you're right. I mean, there are so many little intricate things that, that differentiate, you know, how it's being used. So that's, that's a great, great point. And, you know, machine learning, it really is an art. There are many ML tools and techniques. So, you know, in your opinion, what goes into creating a successful model and improving accuracy like you've been doing? So when we're, we're tackling a new disease, the way we'll typically start is we'll start out pretty simple. We'll take a good general purpose model and our go-to has been either like a gradient boosting machine or XG boost, which is closely related to that. The advantage of these models is they're good general purpose models. They work well on a lot of different problems. They're frequently not the best in class solution um, to, that you'll ultimately end up on, but they're a good starting point. And they also train very quickly. So it, it, it's fast to get initial results and start looking at. Once we've actually built a model, that helps us learn more about the problem. So the first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at some of those metrics about how well did this initial model actually do. And by the way, when, when we we're building these models, we'll just throw every bit of data that we've got at it, let it figure out what types of data are most correlated to making the prediction that it's trying to make. So we'll, we'll look at things like the F1 score, the area under the curve, and what they'll tell us initially is just, hey, just building this first straw model 
how far can we get just with that simple approach? And that gives us a feel about how complex it's going to be to actually make predictions for this condition. Some models, again, referencing back to acute renal failure, easy right off the bat. Other models, we clearly see that we're not doing as well as we'd like to do. So we need to put more thought into it. The next thing we'll do is we'll dive in and we'll start looking at things like what information, what features is the model actually honing in on? Do we see patterns in the cases where it gets confused? Does our sepsis model always get confused with other infectious diseases like pneumonia or cellulitis? If so, then uh, that gives us some information. And we'll also look at the information that the model's choosing not to use. Again, why we provided this in consulting with our clinical team, we expect this particular piece of information to be fairly suggested. That's how they would think about identifying sepsis if they were doing so. Why is the model not picking up on it? And all these clues help us hone in on, are there different techniques that we need to be using to get more information out of some of these features that the model's not taking advantage of? These areas, they're causing confusion. Are there ways that we can make it clearer to the model by either providing additional information or applying different techniques to distinguish between those cases and the cases that it's getting right. So ultimately what this leads to is again, that that iterative cycle. We will come up with theories on what we think is going wrong. We will design an experiment that we have a hypothesis that is going to improve the model in some respect. We'll test that. Sometimes we'll succeed, sometimes we want. And as we succeed, we're increasing the accuracy of the model slowly over time. The other thing that comes up a lot is while every problem is different, every disease is different, there are solutions that are applicable to multiple different diseases. So if you look at sepsis, you look at pneumonia, you look at UTIs, these are all infectious problems. You're going to expect some of the same techniques some of the same model types to work well for um, all of those. So if we find something that works for sepsis, well, let's step back and let's go and apply it to pneumonia. Does it help also with pneumonia? Does it help with UTI? And so we're constantly building out our tool set of specific techniques that work for specific aspects of diseases. And for each disease, we are honing the tool, tool set that we're using for that particular disease. Well, that's so helpful because, you know, as you've mentioned a couple of times, there are there are things like sepsis that are a little more complicated than, say, you know, renal failure. You said that right out of the box, that was a little simpler. Yeah. So using condition models for sepsis, you know, using that as an example, could you give us an overview of how, you know, that model in particular has become more accurate with predictions over time? Sure. And again, with sepsis, because it can manifest in so many different ways, it's one of the more complex diseases to actually diagnose and to predict for a machine learning model. And you can see this, frankly, in just how the medical community has gone about trying to predict it. We've gone through SIRS criteria, SOFA, QSOFA, SSC guidelines, sepsis-3. There's all these different standards, and they will even tell you that those standards are still a work in art. And that's because there isn't a crisp, clear, finite set of markers to look for sepsis. People understand what the disease progression is, 
understanding what predicts it is a much harder problem because again, there are multiple different areas in the body that can affect. So before we did machine learning at all, we had a septus model that was based on the rule set at the time, which I believe was SOFA at that time was the criteria set. And what we were finding is that approach yielded about a 21% F1, which is pretty bad. We built a first gradient boosted model on top of that. At this point in time, I think we were mainly including information about vitals and key medical concepts that we extracted from documents. So these are mentions of things like symptoms and comorbidities that the patient had. And that initial model got us a 53.9% right off the bat. And so 53.9 versus 21, that's part of what got us excited in the first place about the notion of using machine learning is seeing that kind of improvement right off the bat, two and a half times better just by changing the technique that we were applying. Over time, we've gone through extensive iterations on that model. So one of the first things that came up is different feature engineering techniques. And feature engineering is different ways to arrange the data to help the model see the relevant information out. And so I'll give you an example is some of the early feature engineering that we did was just not just looking at the most current lab value, but looking at summary statistics about the lab value. So if we're interested in lactic acid, we don't care just about what the most recent lactic acid value was. We care about what's what's the highest lactic acid value, what's the lowest lactic acid value we've seen, how quickly has it increased or decreased. So some of these techniques, how long has it been out of range, either elevated or low, with elevated being relevant for sepsis. So that helped get us a little bit further because now the model could see we were already providing it lactic acid, but now we're providing it in a new way that helps it understand the significance of the data. At the time, I want to say probably about a third of our customers were sending us vital signs data. So heart rate, respiration rate, temperature. Just over the past seven years, hospital systems have gotten more sophisticated and gotten more connected. And I think pretty much we get vitals data now from every client. But that vitals data turned out to be really important to the sepsis model. Sepsis cares a lot about things like respiratory rate, cares a lot about temperature, cares a lot about heart rate. So just getting that information into the model got us probably an extra 10 points by itself. Another place where we've had to do a lot of experimentation and, and iteration is Hospital data comes across and you're getting lots of data, but you don't always know what the data you're getting is. So for instance, I, I referenced that lactic acid measurement. There are numerous labs across the country with their own name for what that lactic acid test is. Inside the hospital system, you've also got to deal with how did they abbreviate it? What code did they assign to it? And there are certain there's industry standards such as LOINC, which if a customer uses those, God bless them. It, it makes the problem really, really simple to do. Most of our customers don't. So what we've got to do is we've got to take this arbitrary lab value that we're getting, and we've got to figure out 
what are we actually looking at? Are we looking at lactic acid here? Are we looking at a creatinine measurement? Are we looking at a blood glucose measurement? What is this? And this is a fairly straightforward problem individually for a human to read those measurements and, and get at what is being referred to. But you're talking thousands and thousands of these mappings for every hospital and hundreds and hundreds of hospitals across the country. So we did a lot of work in actually applying some of these machine learning techniques to actually learn and predict what the mappings were based upon the terminology being used, the range of values, the reference ranges, and so forth. So now we've got a much richer understanding of the data that's being received and much more accurate understanding of the data. That in turn, better the data, the better the predictions. That helped us more. We've also, over the past seven years, we've, we've continued to get more and more data. And as the volume of data goes up, conditions like sepsis, where there are so many different ways that the condition can present, benefit from having more data because you're getting more examples of all those different ways that sepsis can manifest and you're seeing more and more of the patterns. And so all told, we started out with that rules-based approach, 21%. We're now in the 80s and we're not done yet. I mean, there, there are other things that we are still continuing to experiment with. I mean, sepsis is a perfect example where it's a bloodstream infection with systemic organ failure, depending upon which organs are failing, a lot of our other disease models actually help predict those. So if you're seeing a respiratory failure, well, we've got predictions for respiratory failure looks like. If you're seeing a hepatic failure, you're seeing a renal failure. We've got other models that already know how to predict those conditions. So now we're looking at how we can actually combine predictions from different models to help inform models such as sepsis that are closely associated with these comorbidities. Well, the work that you're doing at iodine is so impressive. It's, it's so exciting to see how with each iteration, the accuracy just continues to improve. It just progressively gets better. So it's been great hearing about where you've been, where you're going. It's you know, just an exciting time to be uh, in this field. So Lance Eason, thank you so much for joining me today and, and sharing your insight. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Well, and I want to thank everyone else for tuning into this episode of the Iodine Intelligence Podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, to stay up to date with the latest episodes, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode soon, but until then, I'm Hillary Kennedy. Thanks so much for watching.